Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy. So today we begin a five-part series on five things the Bible doesn't teach. And the reason we're going to do this is because these are five things that if we went and did a poll down in Atlanta or New York or L.A. or London, people would say, yeah, I think the Bible teaches that. And so it's interesting, we live in a world where a lot of people don't know, well, what does the Bible say? And I'm excited today that my friend Daniel will be the first to present in this series. Daniel and I work together. Uh, Daniel loves the Lord. I'll talk about the impressive things first, then the other stuff second. Uh, Daniel loves the Lord. He is humble when he doesn't need to be. Uh, He acts as though uh, I may have a good idea when I know it's not. Uh, He's a blessing to call a friend and work with. Uh, Daniel and I work at the Adventist Review together. Previously to that, Daniel's done a whole bunch of different stuff, uh, working with NASA and Georgia Tech and Delta Airlines and all in between. And now he's applying all those talents to make the church's journals and media the most effective they can be to reach people with the three angels' messages. So I'm so grateful Daniel's here today. He and his wife live just down southeast of us here, and he and I commute a lot up to Silver Spring. So it's a blessing you're here today, and we're praying for you. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for the introduction, Jared. Um, It's actually good to see Jared. It's the first time I've seen him since the little new human has arrived in their life. So welcome, Ava, in many respects. So absolutely exciting. I know everyone's excited here as a church family. And uh, welcome, everybody, as well. It's good to be here with you. Um, I bring you greetings for our church in Atlanta North. That's uh, primarily where we are based. Um, However, I do call another church home, and that's my church in England, just outside of London. It's called Riverway Church, and it is a nice church like this in terms of its size. Um, and uh, I bring you greetings from there as well also. And if any of you are wondering, I just, I, you know, I am British and not Australian. Um, and it doesn't matter if you call me either. But some people wonder. Um, but what happens, uh, you know, if you're British and you live in the South, which I have done for 10, 13 years, my wife reminded me today, um, your accent tends to go a little bit Aussie. So <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> the Australians may disagree. We have a wonderful message to share today, and we have a lot of information to get through. Um, So I asked you that as we're going to go through this, to have your Bibles to study, um, but also um, that when we leave this place as well, if there are other questions you want to ask, if there are other things you want to look at, we can can talk about those things. We're going to do a quick overview. We're going to get into some detail, but we're hopefully going to come across and come back with an idea of what the Scripture Rapture is all about in terms of the Bible. Does it teach it or does it not teach it? And as Jared said, it's the beginning of a series. So you can have these little pockets here over the next five weeks or five to six weeks of where you can begin to get a picture in the story of the Bible and what it does teach as opposed to what people think it teaches. But before we begin, I'm going to ask the Lord for for a word of prayer as we come to him one more time. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be here. Lord, I just pray now that as we open your word, I pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit, that I may be hid behind Christ, Lord, that my words may be your words, Lord. 
And if I may say anything in error, Lord, that you will guide me onto the right path. Lord, I ask that our hearts and minds may be open, that you will give us a clarity as we study your word, that we may know that when we walk from this um, place, Lord, this place of worship, this place of where families are gathered, Lord, in your name, that we have learned something, Lord, about who you are and how much you are in love with us. Father, I ask that you'll be with us now as we study and open your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want us to begin somewhere. I want us to begin in the book of Matthew. Um, in the book of Matthew, let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew is that first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8. And you may, if uh, some of your Bibles may have two bookmarks, um, I only had the one bookmark. But if you have two bookmarks, keep one of those bookmarks in Matthew 8 because we're going to come back to it, um, towards the end at least. But let's go to Matthew chapter 8 and we're going to begin reading in verse 28. Matthew 8, verse 28. And it says this, and I'm going to read primarily from the New King James Version this morning. Matthew 8, verse 28. When he, speaking about Jesus, had come to the other side, to the country of the Jerzhenzins, basically this is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Verse 29. And suddenly they cried out. This is the the demon-possessed men who are exceedingly fierce, the Bible says. They cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It's interesting here because the demon-possessed men, the demons here, what do they they ask here? Who Who do they identify here? They know that Jesus is the son of God. And they also know that there is a time, there's a time limit even on their existence. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Now, a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. If you look at the parallel uh, verse in actually Mark chapter 5, you actually find out that there's actually 2,000 swine. There are actually 2,000 pigs feeding here at this point. So here's the picture with me. Jesus has come. He's actually come from for respite because if you look at the Bible text beforehand, Jesus has just been in, the, in, a, in a storm and calmed the storm. And now he's come for some respite on the eastern side of Galilee. And he's met with these exceedingly fierce, demon-possessed men who know who he is, by the way. And by the way, the Bible then identifies that there were some pigs feeding, 2,000 of them. That's quite a lot. So the demons, verse 31, said what? They begged him, not they asked, not they plead, not, not a simple kind of, Lord, they begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Now, stop there just one moment. Interestingly, This is Satan's request. He is the one making the request. He is asking Christ, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And he said to them, this is what Jesus answered. Jesus permitted it. He said, go, verse 32. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. You know, this week I was trying to find uh, a picture to kind of show what that, we don't have any pictures of, of swine heading into the water <laughs> over a cliff, but just to show the carcophony, can you imagine the noise and how that would have been? 2,000 demon-possessed swine gathering together haphazardly. And perhaps the question that rises immediately from this Bible text here, the question I always have is why did Satan request to go into the pigs? Why did he ask to go into the pigs? He saw Jesus. He could have said, well, and he knew. He said, is my time come? 
He knew he was. He's the son of God. The, the, the game is up. But he makes a request. He says, let me go into those pigs. And some people may say, well, it makes sense, right? The pigs are unclean. Is, is that maybe what they, maybe they went? They, they were over there. There was the nearest animals. Maybe that's why he went there. However, Satan, I want us to understand this morning, is cunning and he is a deceiver. So what does Satan ultimately gain strategically is my question when he goes into the pigs. Matthew 8, verse 33. Let's keep reading. Let's let the Bible provide the answer. Matthew 8, verse 33 says, then those who kept them, talking about the pig herders, right? Those who kept them fled and went and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It's interesting here where the Bible places the emphasis, right? They told everything. They said, look, there was this man who came and he healed these demon-possessed men. And by the way, there were 2,000 pigs, our pigs, and they went crazy and they ran off the cliff. Where do you think the emphasis of their story lay? Verse 34 in the Bible. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Ah, if we start there, we can say, ah, they found out that's what the Savior had done. They all came out to meet Jesus. Did they come and flock around him? What does the rest of verse 34 say? And when they saw him, they begged him, there's that word again, to depart from their region. Wow. He had just performed this miracle. And now the witnesses, the pig herders, they went back and they told the city. And when they went to the city, the city came out. They came out and they said, Jesus, please leave. They begged him to depart the region. There's a book called The Desire of Ages. It comments, there's wonderful commentary on this. And in that book, there's a wonderful comment that says, it said here, it said, the author says, in causing the destruction of the swine, it was Satan's purpose to turn people away from the Savior. Do you realize that when Satan was encountered with Christ, he saw Christ, yet even at that moment, he had a plan in his mind of where he needed to go next to do anything he could to turn people away from the Savior. Right there. And when they saw Jesus, when the people had, were told about him, they rejected him. They rejected Christ. They begged him to leave. You see, what I want us to understand this morning is that the account of the healed demoniacs expose, exposes here how successful Satan's deception can be, ultimately causing us to reject Christ. And as we live in the final days of earth's history, because we are, his deception tactics, I'm going to call it that, are only increasing in intensity and as he works to tirelessly confuse you and I, our minds, with respect to not only what is happening in the world, but also in the very manner in which Christ will return and take us to be with him in heaven. He wants to confuse our minds about that. How is he doing this is the question. How is he confusing our minds about the second coming of Jesus, as we heard in the wonderful story this morning? Well, maybe I should answer that question with a did you know response. Let me give you a did you know. Did you know that millions of prophecy-minded, dedicated Christians have been taught and believe in the secret rapture? This is a teaching that fundamentally states, and here's the teaching. I'm going to give you the entirety, even though we won't be able to attack or look all, and look at all of it. It's a teaching that fundamentally states that Jesus will return to earth secretly for his true followers, at which point they will vanish and they will disappear. And then when those who are left behind, those who are left behind will actually endure what's called a, in this teaching a seven-year tribulation, during which 
an antichrist, which essentially is an evil man, essentially, would take over the world. He would make a covenant with literal Israel, and then he would rebuild their temple. Then according to this interpretation, in the middle of these seven years, the Antichrist would abolish all the sacrifices in that temple. The world would arrive into some utter chaos. Then Christ would come for a third time in this teaching at the end of the seven years to destroy the Antichrist and set up his kingdom. That's the teaching of the secret rapture. Is it biblical? Well, let me make a declarative statement this morning. I want to start off with a statement so you know where I stand before we begin anywhere else. The secret rapture teaching is not found anywhere in the Bible. Yet, did you know that this distraction, deception theology, that's what I'm calling it today, has so successfully penetrated mainstream Christian theology that it is being taught as truth in the majority of Protestant churches? Take, for example, the focus that the secret rapture places on what literal Israel where it states, amongst other things, that Israel as a political nation still has a place in divine prophecy. But the Bible doesn't teach this. Remember Jesus' mournful words in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the Bible says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. Who is a nation, you may ask? Paul responds in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Greek, Jew, nor Greek, Some of us know this text. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. We are all heirs. Paul in Galatians 6 continues and refers to these people as the Israel of God, a new creation. In other words, the Israel of God, spiritual Israel, are Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male and female, a people on earth, passionately devoted to their creator and redeemer, as he, here's the key, is passionately devoted to you and I. This is the truth that has been left behind in the secret rapture. And many sincere Christians today, many sincere people, prophecy-believing people, are looking on the news, they're looking to see what is Israel doing? But then, look, isn't that another distraction? What's Israel doing? What's, What's going on over here? And we miss out on God's true desire for his people to have a people who's devoted to him as he is as devoted to us. So you may be wondering this morning, how did the secret rapture teaching come about? How is it that it's penetrated such mainstream Christian theology in the majority of Protestant churches? I'm going to give you the 33,000 foot view. In 1590, Francesco Ribera, a Jesuit scholar, completed a brand new commentary on the book of Revelation. Why in the 1500s did Ribera Frances Ribera, complete a commentary in Revelation. Well, in the most basic terms, for the, most, for the previous 70 plus years, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Wycliffe, Huss, and others, all the reformers at that time, had been undertaking careful Bible study. And in that careful Bible study, they had identified that the Roman church was the Antichrist power prophesied in Daniel and Revelation. And Antichrist simply means that which opposes Christ, which substitutes itself in the place of Christ and claims his authority. They had studied this out, the reformers, and they claimed that the Roman church, they, they understood that that was the Antichrist power prophesied in Daniel Revelation. And you see this message, this prophetic message, it spread like wildfire. Why did it spread like wildfire? Because 
in the 1400s, providentially, the introduction of the printing press came about. Now, the population, everybody, you and I, could have a Bible and could study for ourselves and see clearly that one doesn't need to do certain things. One, one can talk directly to God. And so the outcome, Rome's position and perception in the public domain became very, very precarious. They desperately needed a new method of prophetic interpretation to counter the Protestant Reformation. Enter Ribera, the Jesuit scholar. And essentially what Ribera did, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an overview. Ribera devised a new method of Bible interpretation called futurism. Essentially what he did, he took all the Revelation prophecies, except the earliest chapters, and he applied them to the very end of time of history of the church through the ages. And in this way, it's a clever thing that he did. In this way, Ribera made the prophecies about the Antichrist all about some unnamed individual who would appear during the last seven years of Earth's history and cleverly not about the Roman church. Huh. You see, the very early Protestant reformers understood that the prophecies of the Bible began in the time of the prophet and they extended down to the end of time. For example, the prophecy of Daniel 7 which begins in Babylon and extends to the end of time. This is called historicism because the prophecies are seen as moving through the historical continuum. And it makes sense because when you look at the Bible in its entirety and you look about how it's tied together in the story arc of the Bible, the historical view, it ties everything together into a wonderful plan of salvation. But now suddenly, Rivera and subsequent Roman scholars did something interesting. They shifted all major prophetic fulfillment into the distant future. We're just going to push it off as far into the future we can do before the end of time. And they took the finger off the Roman church as the Antichrist. The counter-reformation was in full swing. And I just want us to pause a moment here. Just, just pause a moment. Think about the motivation of how this interpretation came about. Think about the motivation. Was this... Was this a a, a study of careful scripture because they wanted to know more who God is? The motivation for Ribera's interpretation was to somehow figure out how to get at the Protestant reformers. The motivation is key. We're going to come back to that. But what's even more credible is that the weapon used, that, that Rome actually used against Protestantism would actually be embraced less than 300 years later by the Protestants themselves. It'll be embraced. How would it be embraced? I'm giving you the story because the story is important. We're going to dive into the Bible in just a minute. There's an Irish Anglican lawyer, just to give you the big names, there are other names included in this, this, named John Nelson Darby. He was around in the mid-1800s, and he was attracted to Ribera's work, and he furthered the idea that biblical history is best understood in these kind of pockets or separated time periods. This is called dispensationalism, by the way. So he he builds on Ribera's work. He's attracted to it. And he added a twist to his method. Darby said he is the one who actually added the notion of the secret rapture that we've just discussed. But the question is, how did this become, how did it get into mainstream theology? Well, there's a follower of John Darby, right? People follow each other, they're influenced by each other. And there's a key follower of John Darby, of Nathan Darby, sorry, called Cyrus Schofield. Anyone heard of the name Schofield? 
in the early 1900s, he took the secret rapture teaching that he believed in, that based on Darby, that was based on Ribeiro and the Jesuit piece, who was all about motivating against the reformers way back. And he inserted them as Bible notes into a study reference Bible, which is now known as a Schofield reference Bible. It is the most popular Bible sold today. And so when you read the study notes, people believe, well, the study notes must be an explanation of what's been happening in the, in the text. And so the two go hands in hand. And many wonderful, believing, faith-believing people assume that the notes are actually what is being said and take it as gospel in addition to what actually the Bible is saying in its Bible verses. But the bottom line is this. The secret rapture is actually not found in the Bible. I'm going to reassert my position. Let's, in the short time that we have left together, let's unpack the secret rapture teaching by looking at what the Bible actually says about the second coming of Christ. Let's quickly go back to Scripture. First Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Uh, we read it as part of, thank you, Sierra, for the impromptu reading. We appreciate it. We read it this morning in First Thessalonians 4, verse 17 as part of our Scripture reading. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, it says, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, notice those words, caught up. Because those words caught up are often used by rapture promoters to actually say that this is what it means that God's church will vanish and it will be raptured. But if you look at it carefully, the text doesn't actually say that. Let's let the Bible explain itself. 2,000 years ago, at the end of his earthly life, Jesus Christ was also taken up. This doesn't mean he disappeared, leaving his clothes on earth. You know, often... The secret rapture theory talks about that people will suddenly disappear and their clothes will be left here on earth as they've disappeared. That's what the teaching says. He, did, he didn't leave. He was, he was taken up. But he was taken up in four views of his wandering disciples. Acts chapter 9, 1 verse 9. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 says this. Now when he had spoken these things, while they, the disciples, watched they were watching, right? They were there. They were literally there. He was taken up and a cloud received them out of their sight. Now notice what verse 10 says. And while they, the disciples again, look steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him going to heaven. So here the holy angels are explaining the simple truth about Christ's return. They're saying that just as Jesus was literally invisibly taken up in the clouds, he will return in the same way. And by the way, we're going to uncover what the clouds are in just a moment. Some of you may know, but for those of you who don't, we can uncover it in just a moment. There is no secret coming, in other words. This isn't a secret taken away at this point. Go with me to Matthew 24. Let's keep going through the Bible. And actually keep a bookmark. If you have your second bookmark, keep your second bookmark on Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, says this. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. It will be the most eye-catching, visually engaging, glorious scene. Mark 13, verse 26 says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And incidentally, for those of you who don't know, do you know what those clouds are? Psalm 104 verse 3 talks about the clouds as chariots. And chariots themselves are none other than angels. 
Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. Revelation 5 talks about the fact that there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. Do you realize when you do the mathematics of that, that's millions of billions, billions of angels. So when he's being caught up and when he comes again, it's not going to be, sometimes we see pictures of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen a religious picture that shows it? And it's wonderful. And you see these clouds and the clouds look wonderful. But they're missing the point. The clouds are angels who desire your salvation as much as Christ does. Angels and come. But let's put it into perspective. Do you remember when the angel came and removed the stone from the tomb of Jesus and he called him from the grave? Just, I just want a little perspective on this. I want to show you how, 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 how powerful this would be. The Bible in Matthew 28 describes the glory and power of that one angel which caused the earth to shake and the guards to fall back as ten men. So if the glory of one angel can have such an effect, that's just one angel, right? Can you imagine the glory and the power of the innumerable company, Hebrews says, of angels that are going to come? It's going to be utterly, utterly powerful. Nothing in that speaks of a secret coming. Nothing. It paints an amazing picture for us because when we go back to 1 Thessalonians and go back a verse back, 1 Thessalonians 4, we read verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. You see, people often refer to this verse as the loudest scripture in Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, he's not going to keep silent. Psalm 50, verse 3 says, Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be the very tempestuous all around him. In other words, he's not going to sneak into town to take us away secretly. A fire will devour before him. We are going to see it. We are going to hear it. That is the wonderful power and glory of God. A loving God. You see, what I want us to understand this morning is just simply this. Christ's second coming is a literal, universally visible, highly audible picture of reality that is to come. Not a hint of it suggests the secret coming at this point. But remember, Satan is a master counterfeit. He's mixing truth with error all the time. So let's take a look at, a detailed look at two misunderstood verses that have been taken right out of context and often provide the, the basis for why people believe in a secret rapture coming. The first misunderstood verse is actually found in 2 Peter 3 verse 10. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. You see, in the secret rapture teaching, the very first part of that, 2 Peter 3, verse 10, the day the Lord will come as a thief, it's assumed to refer that the Lord will, is coming as something that is both secret and silent in that respect. After all, a thief that comes aims to make minimal disruption, correct? But the key is found in the context. Context is always key of this verse. Because the next part of the verse specifically states that when the Lord comes as a thief in the night, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. There's our loud, <laughs> great noise again. Nothing secretive or silent about this. You see, whenever the New Testament uses a thief metaphor, it never, never uses it for secrecy or silence. It's always for unexpectedness. 
we can study this out for ourselves. The verse here, one of the cornerstones of the teaching of secret rapture, is not talking about how the Lord is coming, but this verse is talking about the timing of his coming. Because a thief never sends a note ahead of time, right? It's always unexpected. But here is the key. Those that are not in Christ will be caught off guard. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 43 to 44. Sobering thoughts here. says this. Matthew 24, verses 43 to 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. There's the unexpectedness. He's coming unexpectedly and suddenly. But the question is, to whom is he coming unexpectedly and suddenly? To whom will it be a surprise, in other words? To those who are not watching and praying and awaiting or anticipating his coming. He wants us to know this, that he wants us to watch and wait and pray now. The secret rapture interpretation also uses another misunderstood Bible verse to support his teaching. Specifically, back in Matthew chapter 24, let's go to Matthew 24, this time verses 40 to 42. Just a couple of verses back. This is one one that says, where the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. That's where the expression comes from. And this particular expression is the one that's been misapplied And incidentally, this is where the Left Behind novel series comes from. Anyone heard of the Left Behind novel series? A few people. Essentially, it's a series of fictional books. It's written by Tim LaHale. And actually, he said that the motivation for writing the books, it's interesting, I don't have the quote with me here. I had it, and somehow I forgot to bring it. But the quote he says is that the reason why he began writing these books is he said that many pastors were not preaching about the second coming. He said there was a void. And so... He looked to fill that void. There is a void. I agree with the fact that we're not teaching this and talking about it more because it's, it's a wonderful truth. But we have an opportunity today to fill that void with what the Bible says. And so there's a, a series of fictional books that essentially promote the secret rapture. And there's a, there are movies. And there's been movies that have been created as long as just three or four years ago with big movie stars. There are uh, TV series. There was a TV series called Vanished and that came out just three years ago, for example. There are graphic novels. There's audio. There's everything you can imagine in through this fictional um, novel series called Left Behind, which all is about popularizing and specifically focusing on two words called left behind, or the terms left behind. And basically, the way that they're saying this is that it, what this stands for is about all about those who have missed out on Jesus' secret rapture coming, but they have a second chance after Christ comes. That's what it's moving towards. But is any of that biblical? Go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's read verse 40, verse 42, and then we're going to go back. Matthew 24, verse 40 to 42. says this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. So this is where left behind comes from, right? Two women will be grinding at the mill. Where's that phrase again? One will be taken, the other one will be left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Question. You don't have to answer. You don't have to put your hand up. Just think to yourself, how many of you would want to be taken versus how many of you would want to be left? It's a good question, right? You see, we all desire to be 
caught up in the clouds when Christ returns. And so at a glance, we may say, we all want to be taken. But let's examine exactly what the Bible teaches and pay attention to the context of the verses. You may switch your mind. Go back just a couple of verses to Matthew 24. This time we're going to read from verse 37. From verse 37, Matthew 24, and it says this. But as, in, as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son, the coming of the Son of Man be. Question during the during the time of Noah, for those who are not on board the ark, were they given a second chance to be saved? They were not. Once the door of the ark was shut, that was it. Probation was closed. And so it's in this context that Jesus says, one shall be taken and the other left. Which begs the question, therefore, let's just dive a little bit deeper. Who was taken? Who was left during the days of Noah? Let's go to verse 38. Let's see the answer in the Bible. For as in the days, we're reading again, before the flood, they, that's the operative word there. Who are the they? They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Just to be clear, by the way, the Bible is not against marriage and, and eating per se, but rather in this context, what's being said is that humanity is caught up with its own cares. Selfish desires have overtaken the human condition to such a point that Scripture says in Genesis 6 verse 5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continuously. Wow. Not just some of the thoughts. Every thought, every intent of the heart was evil continued. Can you imagine that depravity before in Noah's time? Not some of the thoughts, every thought. And so here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 38, the word they represents the loss in no uncertain times. That's what it represents. So the majority of humanity in Noah's time were not getting ready for the flood, not watching and waiting, not anticipating, which is why the next verse, verse 39 says, and did not know. They were not watching, they were not waiting until the flood came and took them all away. So who was taken during the days of Noah? It, the wicked, the lost. It was those who were not ready for the flood. Those did not get on board the ark. The Bible says they did not know. The flood came upon them like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. It was an overwhelming surprise. They did not know until the flood came and took them away. And what about Noah and his family? They were not raptured secretly out of the flood or before it happened, but they did go through the flood and they were preserved. Amen? And this will be the case, the same case for God's church in the last days. God's church will not be taken away from the time of trouble, but under God's protection, his church will go through the time of trouble and will be preserved. Nothing for us to fear. Let's put it in the context. Many sincere Christians today who are hoping, are hoping actually to be taken or raptured before the time of trouble. People say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to be there in a time of trouble if I could just be taken away. But can you see the devastating danger in believing this? What is going to happen to their faith when they find out that there is no secret rapture and they will have to face the time of trouble? Can you see how Satan has covered all of the bases in maximizing those who will be lost by believing in this teaching. That's his goal. That's his goal. 
The Bible is clear that the lost were the ones that were taken away, but what does it mean exactly that they were taken? Let's just explain that quickly this morning. Let's let the Bible continue to explain itself. And we're going to compare the scripture found in Matthew 24, verse 39. Let's compare it with the synoptic gospel of Luke chapter 17, verse 27. So turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 27. It's a parallel to the verse to what's being said in Matthew. Just in the same way in Matthew 8, it talks about the demoniacs and the pigs. Mark gives more clarification. That's what happens in the gospel. You get a little bit extra detail, an angle, a different angle. So the same stories that are being told, same truths are being told. What does Luke 17, verse 27 say? They ate, they drank, similar to what we said. They married wives. They were given in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Matthew says that the flood came and took them all away. But notice what Luke says. The flood came and it destroyed them all. Why? Because to be taken by the flood simply means to be destroyed by it. These are the ones that were taken in the days of Noah. It was a loss. They were taken and destroyed by the flood. So then if the loss were taken, then who were left? There's the other question. Who were left during the days of Noah? The righteous. Noah and his family. They're the ones who survived the flood. The survivors of the catastrophic event. And so it's in this context. That's the context. That pre, that's the precursor. It's in this context that Jesus says in Matthew 24, one shall be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two men, women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken and, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Here's the bottom line. To be taken in this context is not the path that we want to follow. Often we think taken is something that sounds positive. In this specific context, it's not positive. To be left is positive because it means that you've survived it, you went through it, you came out of it, and this is the expression that's being used in this context. But another question arises. How are those not in Christ the lost taken? How exactly are they destroyed? And I raise that question because that's the question I've been asked before. Finish the thought is what's been asked. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. How are those that are taken? How do they meet their end, essentially? 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. You see, the eternally lost will face their final judgment when they stand in God's unveiled presence. Why? Because as Paul says, the opening of their sins will follow after and cannot be hit. In other words, their sins will be fully open to their consciousness on that final day of judgment. Can you imagine what it would be like to maybe fully aware, fully conscious of every sin that you've gone through, you've done, every selfish act, everything in the light of God's perfect love and righteousness and glory, his hatred of sin, not the sinner, the lost will see and feel the guilt with undimmed clarity and they will cry out, as it says in Revelation 6, verse 16, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Powerful image. Does this sound like a second chance to you? Not at all. The Bible doesn't teach a second chance after Christ returns. There's no second chance that occurs in the seven-year tribulation. And by the way, just a note on the seven-year tribulation. I, I, we don't have time to go into detail for this. There's a lot to understand by it. 
But just a note, I want, I want to give you some, some seeds that hopefully will cause us to study more. Just a note on it. The crux of this teaching of the seven-year tribulation is based on a terrible misunderstanding of a single verse in Daniel 9.27. Daniel 9.27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. It may be a surprise to most evangelical Christians to discover that the seven-year tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that they've been taught and continue to be taught is actually did not come from the Bible at all. It came from Rome. It is the bedrocks of Ribera's. Remember the Jesuit scholar we talked about who invented, who created this, this new interpretation. It's the bedrock of his counterfeit teaching of the end time prophecy and Christ's second coming. You see what Ribera did, and I'm going to give you the overview, right? We can study it more, but I'm going to give you the overview. What Ribera did was to essentially take out the 70th week of Daniel 9, and he pushed it some 2,000 years later to the end of time. But it's simply wrong. It's not actually in the Bible. <laughs> For starters, the 70th week must follow the 69th week. Otherwise, it can't be called the 70th week. That's logic. There's not even a hint of a 2,000-year gap anywhere in Bible prophecy. And Daniel 9.27 doesn't talk about a seven-year tribulation. But perhaps most troubling is that it destroys the greatest truth of all. Because by doing that, it removes the only time prophecy in all of Scripture that identifies Jesus of Nazareth as a divine Messiah and Savior of the world. Can you see the danger? Perhaps the most pressing truth I want to leave with you this morning is that there is no second chance when Christ returns. But you may say, well, does God not want to give us a second chance? This is the first time you've encountered the Bible, but is, I thought God was a loving God. See, that's the picture that, God would, that Satan would have you have of God. Yes, he doesn't want to give you a second chance. But it's not true. Peter declares that God is not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to die, which is why he pleads for us day in, day out, and earnestly day, and he forgives you over and over again. That's why you see every day we don't have just one, two, three, four chances. We have chance after chance after chance. Why? Because our heavenly Father is utterly utterly in love with us. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. You became mine. But when we choose the path of self and sin, it hurts the heart of God, plain and simple. There's a wonderful chapter in Hosea chapter 2. We don't have time to go there today. And it talks about how sin, how, how the way that God regards sin is like, a spouse having an affair. That's how much it hurts the heart of God. You see, if we believe we had another chance after Christ's second coming, even if it's a secret rapture coming, what do you suppose human nature, being what it is, would do? What would many of us be tempted to do with that kind of proposition? Keep on living life, right? In my own way, until I see the good people around me disappear, until the elders and the pastors when they disappear, then I'll know, oh, I've got to get my act together. Even that motivation is selfish. Is that the heart that God wants to be in heaven with him? This is why God regards our relationship as a marriage. You see, let me put it even more plain terms. And forgive me for the poor analogy here. But in a marriage, if one of a marriage is to give of each other fully. Love seeks not his own, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. 
Love always works out of itself. Love is other-centered. And so in marriage, you truly give, one spouse truly gives to one as the other truly gives to the other. That's the relationship that's represented by the family of God in heaven. But can you imagine if one in the marriage spouse says, you know what, I want to do my own thing for a while. And um, yeah, I'm just going to do my own thing. And then maybe if you get upset with me or if uh, it leads to something bad down the line, maybe then I'll get my act together and, and spend some time and, and choose whether or not I want to be with you. That's not a relationship. It's not about, well, I'll do that later because right now in the marriage I need to focus on myself, but then you know, we'll have our time together later on. If you're truly in love with the person that you are married to, love in that respect is reciprocal. It's a daily desire to be with the one that you love now, not at some opportune time after you've been able to do what you have wanted to do. If we truly understood how sin hurts the heart of God, wouldn't we want to restore our relationship with him today? You see, there will come a time when God's mercy meets his justice and he declares enough is enough. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he knows our our hearts are thinking of evil continuously as as it were in the days of Noah. Just as in the days of Noah, where everyone's fates were sealed by their own individual personal choices, the same thing will happen in the time. And then God will say, he is unjust, let him be unjust still. She is who is filthy, let her be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And she that is holy, let her be holy still. And you can find that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. Let's bring this full circle this morning as we wrap up. You know, in the account of the demoniacs, the very first story we read, In Matthew chapter 8, the people of the city rejected Christ because of what they had heard from those misguided witnesses. The pig herders, they rejected him. Just as we can be misguided and distracted by Satan's deceptive teachings today. But when the healed demoniacs saw the Savior for who he truly was and came and told the people about what he had done for them, this is what happened. Go with me to Mark chapter 5 verse 20. We're going to finish the story of the hill demoniacs. So far, we've understood that they rejected Christ. They told him to leave. They begged him to leave. But Mark adds further clarity. Mark chapter 5, verse 20 says this. And he, Mark is only speaking of the one hill demoniac at this point. He, the hill demoniac, departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And all marveled. All marveled. The book, Desire of Ages, I mentioned that book earlier today, says that when Jesus returns, thousands from the surrounding region heard the message of salvation. Isn't this amazing? You see, they heard the misguided pig herders. And from the witness of that, they rejected Christ. But all of a sudden, those that were converted, those that had seen the face of Christ, when they came back, and incidentally, they had asked to go with Christ, and Christ had said to them, no, you need to stay here. You've got a work to do. So when they went and told them of what had happened in their lives, how they'd been healed, how they'd been saved, how they saw the beauty of Christ's face, everybody marveled and thousands came from around and they saw who Christ was. Then Christ returned. That is amazing. It puts a personal commission on our hearts. You know, many sincere people believe in the secret rapture, a vanishing that will take them away so that they will never have to face a time of trouble. Or they will have a second chance when Jesus returns, but either path leads to destruction. But just like the healed demoniac, when we see Christ for who he truly is, when he genuinely lives in our heart, what an opportunity we have today 
to tell others about the truth of the second coming as taught in Scripture. So as many as possible can be saved by what they learn and understand who Christ is. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a reason, a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you. Here's my reason why I'm in love with Christ. That's, the, that's what it should, be, it should say. As we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with a heart-wrenching quote from a book called Counsels and Stewardship. This is the quote. Listen to it carefully. The only satisfaction Satan takes in playing the game of life for the souls of men is a satisfaction he takes in hurting the heart of Christ. Well, have you ever <laughs> have you ever spoken to someone who says, I get my satisfaction from hurting somebody else? The only satisfaction he takes gets is from hurting the heart of Christ. And he uses us to do it. He uses the children to do it. Knowing this, isn't it motivation enough to want to guard our hearts and minds against the devil's deceptions? See, the secret rapture, we've done an overview this morning, but here's my plain declarative statement. It is not taught in the Bible. It's a deception, plain and simple, and it's based on a faulty method of interpretation created by a Jesuit scholar, motivated not by an earnest searching of Scripture, but by a need to figure out a way to shut the Protestant reformers up, to stop the revelation of light now that the Bible was freely accessible to everybody. You see, whether it's creating a distraction through a wild herd or thousands of pigs, or whether it's using humans, church systems, to infuse deceiving interpretations into people's minds about God's plan of salvation, Satan's purpose is always the same, to draw us away from Jesus, gaining satisfaction in seeing how this hurts the heart of our Saviour. My prayer this morning is that as you study this subject out for yourselves, because I would implore you to study it out, don't take my word for it. Study it out. Like the reformers, prayerfully search the scriptures so that you can guard your hearts and minds against Satan's dangerous distraction deceptions. And more importantly, so that you and I will not be used by Satan to hurt the heart of Christ anymore, but instead bring others into the glorious light of God's truth his saving grace and wonderful love. This is my prayer for each and every one of us here this morning. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.